Hello, everybody. TJ Schwartz here. I'm here with Lucas Burnley, and you're listening to the Edge and Flow podcast. We have a somewhat of a random episode, a randisode, I guess. We got a lot of stuff going life. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so we just touch and base, talking about a lot of the things that are going on in business and stuff. And we, I, I told Burnley right before the podcast, I'm like, man, I got questions for you. I think you might have questions for me. So let's just <laughs> get after it. Free form. All right, man. Well, okay. So feels like you got stuff to talk about. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, you may be able to hear my CNC machine run in the background. I was kind of hoping it wouldn't come through into the office, but it might. And that what it's machining is the Confidant fixture for doing perimeter machining, chamfers, all nice. that stuff. So the Confidant's the new fixed blade I am launching. And it's, I, I launched the pre-order as previously mentioned and whatnot. And so this is, this is that batch. And uh, yeah, I had a little bit of a hiccup with getting them surface ground. Uh, long story short, a supplier screwed one of my other supply. The supplier that was going to surface grind them got screwed by his supplier. And it's uh, kind of a long story, but end up delaying me a little bit. So it's like kind of a, a trickle down effect, I guess you could say, in a supply chain, which a lot of people are seeing in the world these days, I guess. But yeah. but well, uh, this is the this is what we talk about, right? Like as soon as you let a product out of your shop right. or out of your process, you increase the risk of failure mm -hmm. exponentially. You add other people's world, their problems, their potential yep. issues, their interests. You add that into the equation, which is just more yep. variables, which I understand and I accept. I mean, that's an acceptable thing for me. And so, well, yeah, because you're you're gambling, you're getting more capacity. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the trade off is that you get more capacity, but your risk goes up, and it might be slight, yeah. but you're still you're just adding you're adding more potential for problems during shipping mm -hmm. for processing for this is, it's yeah. like all a learning curve. Yeah, it is. And it, it it's funny. I kind of was thinking about it. I was like, I almost feel like a shepherd. It's like, yeah. I'm trying to move like a flock of sheep, like through the, through the wildlands and like keep them away from predators. You know, it's like Ooh, monitoring yeah. them. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, <laughs> it, it feels a little bit like that. Like I'm moving this flock of knives through. Yeah. I think it's pretty accurate yeah. too. Well, and it, and that's another issue of scale, right? Like more numbers. So as you do larger numbers, the, the active management component of that scales right along with everything yep. else. Yep. Mm -hmm. Until you are a shepherd. Yeah. And so right now, the way I look at it is like, if I'm scaling, I'm either shepherding a little bit of a supply chain for a portion of what I'm doing, or I'm shepherding employees. So those are the two options. And so for now it's outsourcing, um, as far as like my supply chain, as opposed to the employees and I'll get, I think employees are coming someday, but not right now. So yeah, that's uh yeah, but I'm really happy. I, I did get them surface ground and back in the shop. I didn't want to make the fixture until I had them in my shop. Um, just because I, I like being able to lay them out on the fixture and check fitment through each stage of making the fixture to make sure I'm not something isn't wacky or whatever. Yeah. Even um, with your level of like CAD, it's, it's still, I think it's so nice yeah. to have the physical and they're just, they're water jet. components. So it's water jets are really accurate, but they have a, they have a curve, which means the edges aren't parallel. Like there's a little bit of a trapezoid kind of cross section to them. And so it's, you know, there's just little, little things that can jump out and get you on a semi-precise operation like that. Um, yeah. Same. And, and the, the detail stack. Yeah. So yeah. this is like one of those best practice things I feel like for you where you're like, okay, I don't design a fixture until I have the actual water jet component yep. back from water. Jet. Yeah, exactly. going to save you probably a lot of headache in the yeah. future. Yeah. And I might've mentioned that flow chart that I came, did I mention it on the podcast? I posted it on Instagram. I'm not sure I, actually. I made a flow chart for not bit. for production, um, but for actual new product development. And yeah. I staged all the things that need to happen for like a new fixed blade to get launched. And this is one of the things that I set it up in that order was that I wouldn't make the fixture until they were done surface grinding. And so it's kind of like a chronological flow chart. And so I've been kind of stuck on like stage two or three out of this series of stages in the flow chart waiting. Um, and so it's just keeps me honest because it's easy to get to, if you don't have like a guideline, like a roadmap, it's easy. Like I could have made the fixture and I kept telling myself like, no, I made a flow chart for a reason. Like, don't make yep. it. Don't, don't, you know, get backwards on this. So I feel like that just is like for any plan I put into place is like, okay, I made the plan. And then the hard part is actually sticking to yeah, the plan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you did this so you wouldn't have a problem. 
Like, yeah, I, don't jump this I, step. I laminated it and I put it on my whiteboard in the shop and I've been like checking off each box like with a marker and I'm like, just just keep it honest, you know, do it the way it's... Stay in your lane. Yeah. 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 Satisfying anyway. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we got confidants are rolling. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, uh, a good, uh, really good knife designer came by your shop. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, man. Dude, it's so nice. So um, Jens Anso came and visited. Um, Jens and I have been friends for, geez, almost the entire time I've been making knives probably. And he's both one of the makers that I've looked up to most in the industry and also feel the most, uh, I don't know if camaraderie is it, but we have, I think, like a very similar process in terms of like, design, even from a visual standpoint and just aesthetics and the way we look at the industry. Um, I've always said we, we kind of like leapfrog each other with ideas. A lot of times it's like, we're, I noticed that we're working on similar concepts around the same time. And, um, over the years we've done, I think we've done either like four or five in-person collaborations where like I would fly over to Denmark or he'd fly to New Mexico, um, and work in each other's shops and yeah, with, with kids and growing businesses and time and just life. We haven't done that in a long time. Mm. So we haven't seen each other or spent time together, like outside of a show in probably like seven or eight years. Mm. So yeah, he, he flew out for like a long weekend and we just hung out and I showed him around bend and man, it was, it's awesome. It's so nice just to sit and have the conversations like as a maker, when you are able to like the same type of conversations that you and I have where you click with someone and are just able to like enjoy the process of like debate and exploration. Yeah. It's rad. Yeah. It's, I've told people before that this industry is like really full of people and really amazing people, but in a weird way, there's a lonely factor to it. Because totally. it's like the odds of someone in this industry being like next door to you is kind of low. I've got a few because yeah. I'm in Boise, but when you go to a show, like you just realize like all these like-minded people just kind of feed your flame. But like yeah. you said, at a show, I mean, it's a different environment. There's, there's customers, there's yeah. tons of people you got to talk to. You can't have like that really authentic experience. Yeah. You might get a dinner, but there might be, you know, a small dinner is eight people. Yeah. You know, yeah. So your, your time is divided no yeah. matter what. Well, Jens is, is absolutely like superlative in the industry i i really yeah. look up to yens and i've only met him two or three times and i just you know one of those show situations like a yep. couple passing conversations i'd love to get to know yeah. get to know him a little better but he's yeah he's one one of the good guys yeah he's definitely one of the good guys it's it's cool man just like hearing what he's up to so i mean he he has you know the his company and the product that they're producing he is one of the founding members of giant mouse and then, you know, he does production collaboration too. So like for me, there's, there's not a whole lot of people that are doing the business, the like very similar to what I'm doing as far as like the moving pieces mm-hmm. and like Jens is probably the, the closest. Mm-hmm. So it's really fun just to be able to like run the gamut of thoughts that go through like everything from like, Oh, I just made this one knife by myself to like, now my company is doing this mm-hmm. or like I'm working with these companies and it's just, man, it is, it's so satisfying. We, we basically just like, <laughs> we were going to do some stuff in the shop. I'm like day one, we just like went for a hike and you know, it's like three hours later. I was like, Oh, well, it's time to go have a beer and then yeah. <laughs> like go, go visit. Oh, that's something that's pretty fun. So we went and visited Keaton. Um, Myrick, my watchmaking buddy, and got to like hang out in his shop. You were asking about the Rose engine yeah. a little bit. Witchcraft. That thing. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like got a steampunk element to it or like fully. It you look at it. I was joking about it. I said that that's like where the like the genre of steampunk would have originated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like for sure. And it, it's like there I'm like, where's the computer? Like where's the yeah. where's the CNC? And then I look, I'm like, wait, you're turning a knob? Like you're it's like you're operating like a lathe or something. It's crazy. Dude. Yeah. It's got these discs that like everything engages different. And then there's like different phasing and, and all of it at the end. So you're dealing with all this precision at the end, your thumb is still pressing the engraver. Mm -hmm. So there's like this crazy level of detail and like 
kind of uh, settings that you have to manage. Mm-hmm. And then you also still have to have like skilled touch. Yeah. Um, what a cool thing. It's wild. The technique that it's used for is guilloche for you guys, if you're unfamiliar. So if you just, um, you know, it's spelled exactly like it sounds. So guilloche, mm-hmm. uh, go look it up. And it's what you think of as like the wavy pattern, maybe on like uh, watch cases or like Fabergé or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. It's like machine knurling or machine. What is it? Jeweling. It's like, but it's with- engraving. So it uses an engraving cutter in a repeating pattern. Uh, it's there's too much. So like Keaton is in there, like creating patterns that are repeatable and then using like using those on a watch face, but like watching him develop the patterns and then create the repeatability is what is mind blowing to me. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in the knife world, I was trying to think like you see it occasionally. Alan Elishowitz is the maker that I really think about it. I think he had like a, uh, like maybe like a straight line and, and a Rose engine. Um, something like that. It's it, cool stuff though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Did that. Do you know the history behind those machines? Like where are those from? Um, I don't know the history. Keaton would be a yeah. good one to ask about that. Um, pretty sure they're from the watchmaking industry. Um, they also use them for like ornamental turning, but it's like a different setup. So I would be curious to know if the origin was metal or wood. Yeah. First. Good question. That I don't know. And if um, Da Vinci had drawn it on a page and it's in a museum somewhere, it's yeah. it seems like everything cool that exists in the world, Da Vinci figured it out before everybody else. So. Something. Yeah. <laughs> he was sipping of the elixir. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He knows something. He knew so, something we don't. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He had but, universal access. Yeah. He had the he had the, yep. <laughs> the high downloads. Yep, yep, that's right. Man. So yeah, so that's that was that was really, really good. Um they, just to go off on like a side tangent of this too, this has happened to me a few times over the last couple of years, which is like, you know, as we get older and life gets busy, like it's really easy to drift apart from friends. And you you spend so much time building these relationships at different points in your life that like, man, like just checking in with someone once a month there's a huge amount of value in it. Mm-hmm. And if it's not value for you, it might be value for the other person. Mm-hmm. And maintenance is so easy if the relationship has already been built. Yeah. And I've had like a few friends reach out and just be like, Hey, I like, I realized we hadn't talked in two years and I miss you. And I just want to like say hi. Yeah. And I'm like, it's a good, that's a good way to start the new year. Yeah. So I'm trying to do that too. Yeah. A little bit. No, I, I'll definitely take that to heart. Yeah. I, I I've always, I said earlier just now, like the, there's like a, that little loneliness element in what we do because we're single guy in a shop. Yep. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's just important. That just kind of highlights like what a cool era too, that you can actually do that. I mean, you're, you're collaborating with a guy in Denmark. I mean, what a, yeah. what a world, right? And we met, yeah. Like we met, mm-hmm. you know, because of internet forums. Yeah. And so you know, it is really, it is really pretty We bad. should definitely as humans be utilizing that for good purposes, which like you said, yeah. staying in contact, maintaining, you know, quality lifelong relationships and stuff for sure. I think it, I think it lends to a general well being mm-hmm. in life. Like you think about it, I'm trying to reach out more regularly, like just grab lunch mm-hmm. or a beer mm-hmm. with buddies here. Yeah. And in, in Bend, all the friends are newer. So you're still kind of in that stage of like developing the friendship. It's not, oh, I've known you for a decade and you instantly pick up where you left off. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, or there's a few dads that I've made friends with, like because of the kids at school and then the kid will leave school and you're like, well, I actually would like to stay in touch, but you gotta, you gotta put in the work. Yeah. Yeah. Takes, it takes a little bit more than just yeah. thinking about it. Yeah. That's good. So yeah, lots of, uh, my, my cup is full right now as good. far as just like feeling like I got to really have some good conversations and some feedback. Um, one thing that was super helpful and this is like, this is great. So we're doing the QC on the, the last of the SQDs mm. and to be fair, I am very critical, right? I am critical of my own work and like I don't always know in relation to production, even after this many years, if I'm being reasonable or not. Mm -hmm. And so 
it was great to have Jens and, and be able to ask him like, cause you know, he's used to dealing with giant mouse stuff yeah, and just be able to say like, Hey, like, what are you, what are you seeing? What are you comfortable with? Am I, am I like, is what I'm calling out as a problem? Do you see it as a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like a pretty good, pretty good little bit of feedback. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm sure he's got amazing insight. Yeah. Giant mouse is yep. impressive. They got a lot of Italian stuff they've been doing. And, yep. Yeah, yeah. They're crushing. Yeah. Yeah, the Italians make some sweet knives, man, yeah. and sweet cars. It's yeah, it's, un, it's like I feel like it's like slightly less known at this point. Yeah. But yeah, when you look at what some of them are doing, like you like, you know, Lion Steel, Viper, Fox, like they're just doing really high end work, and it's different. But most of the companies were old school companies to start. So like you look back and you're like, oh, here's these like wood handle mm-hmm. lockbacks from like the 1970s. It's cool to see like where those where yeah. like generationally or like a son will come into the company or like new blood will come into yeah. the company and start to like modernize it. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Pretty it kind of reminds me of, it's a little bit different plane, but it kind of reminds me of Boker, similar kind of thing yeah, going on. Totally. There. Got that like German yeah. history, but then they modernized in some categories. Yep. Yep. Which brings up a good point. Like in Germany, is there any other knife companies other than Boker? Oh man, are you kidding? I don't, I, that's gonna no no that like oh that's maybe that's like a buddy trip we do sometimes. Yeah. So in Germany, Solingen is Germany's like cutlery hub. So if you think about it from the standpoint of like kitchen knives only, you have like Wusthof and Henkels, you have Boker, um, and then there's a bunch of smaller brands. Boker is not a kitchen specific line, whereas like Wusthof and Henkels are. Mm. The That's why entire, I haven't heard about them. Yeah, yeah. About and and then there's in inside of Solingen, there's all of these smaller brands, right? And and some of them not even that much smaller, but like Puma and um I'm trying to think. I'm gonna I'm gonna glitch and like not remember it. But that is that is the town industry. Mm. That's awesome. Super cool. Yeah. Same with Italy. So you have Maniago, right? Which is Cutlery City. Um Japan, you have Seiki City. Yep which is like traditional. I think there's, there's more than that now that I don't really know about. Um, Spain was Toledo. And I would argue that U S is kind of like, I guess overall it's probably Portland. Yeah, Probably. I was going to say Portland and Boise, Portland and Boise, but firmly situated in the Pacific yeah. Northwest. Yeah. That would be the takeaway. Yeah. Idaho, Oregon, mainly Idaho and Oregon, honestly, in large part. Yeah. And then of course you've yeah. got a lot of cool brands elsewhere, but like, as a yeah, density. but the hub, the big, yeah. the big companies, yeah. you know, it's like you look at Portland and you've got Leatherman, Benchmade, Kershaw, yeah. CRKT, yeah, like yeah. there's an industry there. Yeah. No, that, that's where like the big, big boys are. That's kind of yeah. like the, the Nashville of knives is like Portland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then what's cool is now you have like the more modern companies, like you see James brand yep. or, you know, Burnside knives mm-hmm. or like just like companies that pop up in the ecosystem. Um, uh, arguably the same way kind of around Boise, which would be who is, was Chris Reeve the, like the first like big company there? Uh, well, if you're talking Boise specifically, yeah, he was, he kind of brought high end knives it into Boise. Boise, right? Yeah, yeah. But you've got Buck knives in Idaho, Buck, you got Piranha. Buck and where were they? Buck is Northern Idaho, Post Falls, yeah. way North. Yeah. 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 And then you've got like Piranha who do cool automatic knives and stuff yep. there, Southern Idaho. And then you've got Tops knives, fixed blades. Yep. And then has Tops always been in Idaho? I don't know. That's a good question. I feel, I actually feel like maybe they have been, but yeah, yeah, but you see like that scale, like at a point it just becomes easier to conduct business when there are businesses yeah. of a like kind. That's why, you know, when you look at manufacturing on the East coast, like, that's why you can still go there and get tons of machine tools is because it was a hub. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know? and, and also like when there's a, a certain, like when talent and understanding surrounds an industry, then it starts to like trickle out and you get like a family tree. Cause you can yep. look at, you know, the Benchmade story and the Kershaw story and the CRKT yep. story. There's a like Gerber's there and Gerber was like one of the OGs. And then there was like a yeah, little, I don't even know how I forgot. Gerber. Yeah. There's like a little bit of a tr- family tree that comes from Gerber yep. out there. Um, and so same thing with Chris Reeve, I think, and, and Boise specifically. But yeah. yeah, I was thinking about, I mean, there's probably eight, six or eight like manufacturers within like a 50 mile radius of Boise, yeah. something like that Yeah, at this point. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 
but what else? So that's what, okay. There's like, there's my weekend yeah. and a kind of a weird digression, but <laughs> history and, and locations of manufacturing. Yeah. So we do have a very big elephant in the room to address. Okay. The project that we've been working on together that we yep. talked about in the last episode, the anonymous or the not anonymous, the, the, yeah. uh, <laughs> the transparent project, quite the opposite the transparent project, is, yeah. uh, is unnamed. And so we right. talked about naming this sucker so that you guys can know what you're looking at. So yep. you're the designer. You came up with a name. Yep. Let's hear it. You approved it as yeah. the manufacturer. Uh, we are calling it the Nova one. Yep. Nova dash one, like the numer- numerical Nova one. dash one. Yep. Yeah. So origin of Nova being new. Mm-hmm. And also like my continuing obsession with somehow designing stuff for space Marines. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a perfect a, name. I, I really like it. Cause I'm a classic car guru. Like it, it is yep. a classic car name too. So yep. there's a little bit of that and it does kind of fit the vibe. Uh, yep. But yeah, Nova one. I, I like, I like concise names. Um, yeah. Same confidant. It's a big word if you look at it, but it's like, yep. I don't know. It seems more concise than it looks on paper. And like, I just like simple, clean names and Nova one is yep. just, it is just right. I, I think, think it fits. That's naming like, I don't know. I've, I, I always think there's a lot of power in a name, mm-hmm. right? And it does a name, make a knife. No, but like makes it cooler. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, it, it has oh. the power to sync projects. I mean, you miss, sure. misname something like you can not maybe sync it, but you can damage a rollout for sure. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I hope you guys like that. So definitely comment. And uh, from now on, we will be referring it to it as the Nova One. And it Henceforth. is still the transparent project. So you guys will be hearing all about yeah. it. I guess that brings us to a point. If you want to give us an update on design. Uh, yeah. So um, we, the plan with this is basically for me to dial in like visuals as we go. But since you're ma- you're essentially engineer and manufacturer on this, there's a point where it doesn't make sense for me to take the work too far. Right. Okay. Um, both from a time standpoint, but also from a manufacturing standpoint. So I have completed basically initial sketches and a like a V1 CAD model. So uh, I sent you the CAD model. Mm-hmm. And basically at this point, you and I are going to go back and forth on the overall profile and any changes that have to happen to like the general form before we start getting into any other details. Yeah, Kind of big picture vision conversation. And big picture. Ergonomics. Yeah. We're going to look at it, put it in your hand. Is it the right size? Are the lines and, you know, general proportions where we want them? Mm-hmm. And then probably what we'll do is that'll get kicked back over to me. I'll make a round of changes and then add some, there's a few details that I'll add here. Like I'll do like probably the pocketing. One change that I already made is that you on the knives that you've currently done, you've done three handle screws, Mm -hmm. right? I, a lot of times do two. This is where I think the value of, you're de- like I'm designing in your ecosystem. So the goal is I'm going to add, I'm going to add that third screw so that you can do like your bird's eye assembly on it. You can, but I'm okay. thinking about it. I don't think it's critical. I don't think it matters. Okay. I think I, I just do okay. three as, as like a default, but I look at, totally. I'm thinking, I mean, I just designed a fixture this morning. I don't think it's required. Totally um, not required, yeah. but that's, this is some of the, like just the design language stuff that I think, is fun to carry through if it doesn't detri- like if you have a design language that you're using inside of your company and it doesn't detract from a product that I am submitting I don't see an issue with including it right six and one half dozen yeah. of another yeah. we can try it both ways yeah. and we can make a judgment call um we can move away from like what do you what do you call that your handle screw assembly. Do you have a name for I, it? That's a good question. I don't have a name. It is. I've never seen it quite done like that. It is a, de- it's a weird way of doing it, but, uh, but shoot, I should probably come up with a cool trademark slick name for it. Some kind of eye. Yeah. Right. 
No, it's it's it, yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, but it's basically the only thing that holds the whole thing together is the collars. So if it doesn't, right. if it didn't have the collars, it wouldn't actually work. Um, and it was kind of a process oriented design situation, and that right. is that I wanted a collar that was cool, but like I actually needed it from a mechanical standpoint because the I don't like going too small on screws. I just 632 right. or bigger. And so it, with a 632 screw, the barrels that are threaded that I could source that were able to have a 632 thread that I wasn't going to have to have custom made, the diameter of that barrel was larger than the largest screw head of a 632. And it's getting a little into the weeds, but the screw heads would pull through. Like there would just be no cut, like purchase on the handle material. And so I, the washer is actually what holds the handle down, not the screw. Um, and so the added benefit is that you can custom order it with brass, stainless, black, or whatever on this on the collar, so you can get a little contrast, a little glint of another color. And the alternative would have been you would have had to have had custom standoffs machined or you would have modified yeah. them. Yeah. And so you got like kind of a double win there, which is you got a unique look and designed to the process instead of processing to the design yeah yeah which is and and that's uh, brings up another philosophy that i learned early on uh and that is more parts doesn't mean harder to make like right there more parts can mean easier oftentimes less parts is actually harder uh so that's one thing It, it, it depends on the project but like i designed a knife one time that had no screws and as minimal number of parts as possible. And it was a lot harder than a normal knife. And yeah. that you would think like, oh, the manufacturing is going to be cheaper because it has less parts and eh, not so much. So, yeah. Well, and I think, I think too, there like for designers, there's this, there's this thought that like, you know, a design is done when you can't take anything else away. Mm-hmm. And that is a very cool sounding concept. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's like lend, like going into like your uh, AirPods or something. You're like, there's nothing here that doesn't need to be here. But it also doesn't always match an aesthetic that you're going yeah. for. So sometimes more parts is also not less design. Yeah. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. And especially <laughs> like if the parts are the right parts. Because yeah. if it's a, like for, you know, in this perfect example, instead of having custom barrels, the washers that I buy are standard washers. They're not, I'm not yeah. custom ordering those. So I'm not having to make custom parts. It's like you're looking at the internet catalog. That's like a billion parts out there. And you're kind of trying to think of how you can combine them in unique ways. Yep. And it's like all that is e- ordering stuff is easier than making custom stuff. So, and so all of that is the reason that I'm including those screws in this design. Oh, okay. Because that whole process I think is actually, very cool to what you're doing. So it's something that like just feels very uh honest mm. to put to, to do. put in it's not just an aesthetic. You had a reason for doing it. Three screws, like, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well three screws, but specifically the screws with the collars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Like just that general process. Right. right. It's a little I hope it's gonna be a little bit of a signature of my stuff. I know it's not the first time people have put collars on a fixed blade, but uh yeah. Yeah. The way that you're doing it is different is a little bit different though. We always worry about like, yeah, doing it. You, you, especially with your desire to reach the furthest, <laughs> you know, corner of whatever, you know, yeah. plane get to the on. edge. Yeah. Getting to the edge. I tried not to say it, um, <laughs> but, but sometimes it, it, I feel like it's just reimagining something that is aesthetically pleasing in your own image. Right. Like you want to, like, I really, really like that. I don't want to do what this person did, but I, but I want to create that feeling mm-hmm. around it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. No, for sure. And yeah, it's, it's interesting how like product design works. And so I hope you guys are, are excited for, you know, Burnley to push me a little bit and for us to take this to the next level with this bigger knife that's going to, you know, test some of my manufacturing stuff. And, these little problems are, are things we're going to have to navigate. So now that you've like sat on the design a little bit, is there anything on it as of right now that you see being a problem in manufacturing? Not in manufacturing. No. Yeah. No. Okay. No. Or in finishing. 
the finishing is the que- the tumble is yeah. the, still the question. I think we're going to be good. Uh, good, good, a- good ask there because I I actually talked to uh, I could call him a buddy of mine. His name's Jesse Jaros. Jaros, yep. you know him. Yep. Um, Jaros, yeah. in Montana, and he's a knife maker. He's got the same tumbler than I do, and I wanted to talk to him because I'd only met him briefly, and I was I wanted to ask him about his tumbler and kind of how he was doing it and see just some pointers or whatever. And I called him first time talking to him on the phone, just super nice guy, super open book. And he gave me some pointers on this tumbler that I think might answer a few questions. Cause what I saw is he was doing some massive knives. Like he even does like machetes. And so I was trying to figure out like, okay, what problems is he having? And he answered a couple questions for me. So I think we, uh, I think, I think the cages I'm using are, are working, but I think there's another way forward as Ooh. another possible way, but okay. not without consequence either. Cause the, I guess I'll dive into that. The sure. I was going to say, like, yeah. don't hold out if it's yeah. something you want to talk about. No, it's, it's not like secret. I mean, there's probably 15 makers listening to this. that are going to say, yeah, I already knew that, which even in some ways I kind of already knew it, but he told me, you know, this is how he's doing it. But basically with tumbling, the longer you tumble it, the general idea with the finishing process is it's going to average out better and better and be like more consistent. The longer it's in the tumbler, if you leave it in there for, I've been doing like one to two at three hours, like playing in that range. Yeah. Until the point you actually start to change dimensions. Yeah. And so his, yeah, his point was like that you got to tumble it longer than that. He's going way longer than that. And if, if it's changing dimensions, what you have to do is dial back the grit of the media and so there's a, there's a happy point where it's like, this is like, it's almost like data because the amount of like abrasion happening to the part, it's random. But the thing about randomness is if it, if it, if you have a big enough random data set, then it becomes really even and well distributed. Right. And so that's why tumbling in a long time works. But if you have coarse media, you're, you're eating the tip and your chamfers are disappearing. And so yep. he's, he's gone to a, like a finer grit and a longer tumble. Um, and so I've got a relatively coarse grit and that might be a part of my problem, but that's, uh, that's something I'm going to experiment with. I'm going to push back on it, but not like real hard. Okay. Uh, the only thing that I can say about that too, is like as a surface finish, you can be looking for a different thing out of tumbling. So yeah. if you tumble for a long time, there are finish techniques that you can't do mm-hmm. also. Yeah. But it but it really depends on what the end goal is. Yeah. If it's true deburring and like uniform finishing, more time at the right grit definitely makes more sense. Mm-hmm. I like to do things where it's like a lot of times I'm doing it as like a a final finish where I almost want like a crystalline structure. Yeah, like marbled almost. Yeah, yeah. you like tumble too long, that goes away. Yeah. Or I'm using it for like distressing over yeah. anodizing. And so I think as long as you have like the idea of yeah. what you're actually trying to accomplish and not trying to put everything under one, yeah. you know, tumbling practice. And, and that's where I've been is I do like that marble look that we've talked about, yeah. that, you know, like where you're tumbling a shorter period of time, but there's two problems I've run into with that. One is if I want to put more knives in the tumbler, that, that randomness yeah. becomes a problem um, yep. because they intersect each other, which is why I came up with the cages, which somewhat works. Yep. I think it's a decent solution. But the other problem is if you're not tumbling it long enough to like I'm sandblasting the parts before putting them in the tumbler, just a real right. light, like fine grit. If you don't tumble it long enough, you actually leave pits from the sandblasting that are possibly corrosion points. Totally. And so totally. you'll actually get a more likely to have corrosion and rust if you're not tumbling yeah. it long enough. But if you don't blast it, then you have to still have to tumble it longer because there's the heat treat patina and like other marks that need to come and out. And you generally come out with a different color yeah, anyway. Yeah. So Third option there, like you can pre-tumble for deburring, yeah. then go to blasting, then go to another round of tumbling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, depending on what the the desired outcome is, it might it might be like a moot point, yeah. right? If you're just looking for like a really smooth, uniform gray, yeah. you just tumble it until it gets to that point. Up, into, up until you get to bright finishes, because you can stagger tumbling techniques and theoretically go much closer towards like a mirror yeah. polish. Like if you look at a blade on a Swiss army knife, they're tumbling to that finish. Yeah. And it looks so near mirror. Like pretty shiny. Yeah. 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 So yeah, no, that 
I, I still have a lot to learn. I think vibratory finishing is is it's a fun thing, but it is a time consuming and expensive thing because like the tumbler is a costly thing. That's fine. Yep. But buying media is such a gamble because it's yep. insane. It's like maybe five hundred bucks worth of media just to fill that tumbler. Well, and remember, most of the most of the tumbler companies will do testing for you. Mm-hmm. So if you have a finish that you like and you have a product, you can send them like you could send them a machined blade and a finish that you like and say, I want to get close to this mm-hmm. and they will develop a process for you. Yeah. So that's a, a very, very good, good use of other people's process. Um, and then really to mess with your head, you could go to like a centrifugal finisher. Yep. Yep. High speed, yeah. not vibratory. High, high um, energy is, is a great solution if I had the yep. space, but that it's something that's like on the long list maybe. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, my buddy, Pat Pruitt, uses like the high energy yeah. finisher. That's how I do it. That's how Chris forward. Reeve does it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Chris Reeve, but you will, you can also like literally just melt your knife into nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it will eat it. Yeah. It'll disappear. And it, yeah, we're talking yeah. minutes, not hours. So yeah. it's like pretty cool. Yeah. No, for sure. All right. So next stage is on Nova one. Uh, you got to get on that, look at it, boot it back over to me. And then, yeah, we're just gonna keep yeah. kind of get some 3D prints it. rolling. Get some 3D yeah. prints. We'll be posting pictures Post of 3D videos. prints on that, so you guys can see. I, I, I really look forward to holding it because with a fixed blade, I've said it before. It's like ergonomics are almost everything because yeah. it's just like it's a fixed blade, and so I'm really excited. I know you, you're kicking it around and getting the ergonomics right, and I can't wait to yeah. see how that turns. I out. I feel like I'm close. I, my gut is that I could have done one more round of iteration, but I'm actually, I actually got stuck on the CAD getting a line the way I wanted it. And so I wanted your feedback on how to correct this infusion. It, I know how I would do it in. Are you talking about your, Rhino. you're having a hard time trying to decide artistically or actually just using the program? Actually get, get to a point. It's like, I'm, I'm using like, you know, a, like a three point arc to like match mm-hmm. something and I'm not I'm not getting it the way that I want it. And I mm. remember you showing me some methods that had more control. Mm. So yeah. yeah, but I think it's close. The biggest changes that I've made from the initial drop, like my initial sketch were I, so I, the V one, I extended the blade length to like five inches. Um, first real change was I extended the length of the handle and slightly changed the angle. Cool. And that now I feel like we're in a really good, like starting spot. Good, like, good. This is ground zero. That's great. Yeah. I can't wait yeah. to, can't wait to handle it. So, yeah. And, and we talked about, this is another little thing is like, I have my coupons for my handles water jet. And so one of the process things I'm thinking about is like standardizing coupons to some degree yep. and that's thickness and overall dimension without waste yep. too. Cause if you have a big coupon and a small handle, you get waste. And so it looks like your knife is going to be in the range of a new coupon category. But what I might do is I've got another design that's larger in mind and I might get the design on mine going a little bit so that I can see about making these coupons fit for both, even if it's down the road. Uh, And that's just, that's the mindset I'm trying to pursue here is like, there has to be some degree of standardization, but I don't want the standardization to totally control design. Um, yeah, I, I respected when you, cause I was, I asked you right away. I was like, Hey, we can scale this thing down to match your current coupon size. And you were quick to say like, no, yeah. I don't want, I don't want my process to dictate the design yeah. and that, I mean, from a manufacturing standpoint, that's actually a difficult decision to make because you just incurred more cost and more just the inventory uh, expansion. Yeah. just to do this but the designer in you is also looking at this from the fact that you don't want to alter the visuals just to hit a manufacturer it's process oriented design not process driven design right yeah yeah we're looking at i think the scale like max width on that scale would be like one and five hundred and fifty thousandths or something uh, in, what is your current coupon? Inch and a half on the height. Yeah, like my, just about my an coupons inch are inch and a half. So we actually, with like very minor tweaking, we may okay. be able to work. But what? It. How long that's, is it though? 
the length of it is that might actually be an issue. What is your current five? five? Now we're at four and uh, four and three quarter. So if I'm not gonna, yeah, like I said, if if it's yeah, yeah. if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But yeah, yeah, that's one thing. If if we're within fifty thou, like maybe. But the other thing is yeah, the thickness. I would say 75, 75. I think we would be your current thickness quarter, quarter inch. Quarter inch is what I'm buying. I feel like we're probably pretty co- close there. Okay. So okay. we'll play it by yeah. ear. We don't need to rush it. Because if, if we're going to – I also – this is why the profile is so important. Yeah. Is because we have to know what is this handle actually going to be sized at. Yeah. And how big is this knife? Because it's easy to say like, oh, we're going to pull – we're just going to scale this down by 2% and it would fit. Yeah. 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 Right. So, yeah, that's a that's a good point. And the other thing, though, is if, if we do decide to go thicker – then we're no mm-hmm. longer at all tied to that dimension, the 1.5, because it's not going to matter anyway. Right. But the, and that's really where the 3D print comes yeah. in. Yeah, and the other thing is, this is really getting into it, but like a sheet is 24 by 36 that I buy for this yep. my card in G10. I chose 1.5 by 5 because it actually fits, it it yields really well in a sheet. Right. Um, so that's that's another little thing, um, but it's not not critical, you know. Okay. Then we'll have, yeah, she thing. Oh, man, there's so much. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we're actually, all things being equal, we're making pretty good time on this for not really actually having done much. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm I'm just getting things smooth. Like that flow chart, it's, I'm in a testing phase. The Confidant's the first one to use that new product development flow chart. And so I'm, I'm kind of learning, you know, I want to compress product development cycles, I think, in the knife industry are sometimes frustratingly long. Yeah. And because I have the ability to shorten it, I yep. want to do that. Right. Yep. So, well, we've talked, we talked about it a little bit on the last one, I think, which is so far during this project, one of the biggest benefits that I can see about a fairly rapid development time is that we are able to talk about the project in real time. Yeah, exactly. I think that that is super, super valuable. I just think it makes a project more interesting. Mm-hmm. Even if it's in six months or a year, if you were giving the updates and showing the work over that course of time, I just think you yeah. have a more interested base. Yeah. Yeah. And it, right. It's the storytelling component. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I really like seeing. Like, you know, I follow brands in the car industry and in the knife industry and whatnot. And like, if you just see a perfect image on Instagram, and nothing else like yep. that design and execution and price better be awesome for that thing to sell. Yep. But yeah. Cause you're not emotionally invested it, in the process. Exactly. And so that's part of the job sometimes as a designer is to get it without having any previous association to look at it and say, yep. I want it. And there's that. But if you have a story behind something and you can understand the reason why it was done, how it was done, that like the heart that went into it, then you still want it to be that knife that like grabs your attention and makes you want it if you'd never heard of it, but it just creates a fuller package. You know what I mean? Like a bigger, yep. a bigger picture. Just, just understanding. Yeah. yeah. And something that I'm actually really excited about. Like, I kind of hope we have some failures on it, which is like hard to say cause yeah. it's you and I don't want you to have any failures, but at the same time, I'm like, man, if there's a component of this that doesn't work, first time either in the design standpoint or or in manufacturing it's that same thing yeah. it's like okay it's just part of the process gives us something to learn from something to talk about yeah it gives yeah. you something to learn from and it's like that's social media in general man everybody sees the final product everybody sees the best picture of whatever experience yeah and i think it's cool to be able to show that like it actually like a lot of this is actually work yeah yeah and that's <laughs> and not perfect yeah with a podcast like this i i do i do like the thought of being pretty level with like failures yeah. um and that's why i was talking about this you know surface grinding thing like it was from it was water jet and then from this is all done locally so there's no shipping but it was water jet and it was 55 days to get it surface ground and so it's like that's oh wow yeah that's a a huge chunk of time and a huge chunk of money which is another point i've got a, f- a friend who runs a bit and spur company that is huge it's like really really famous it's he is chris reeve but bits and spurs yeah. so he went from yeah. custom making it like more of your conventional 
uh, like blacksmith type worker. And then he created like a company, but didn't overly grow it to where it's still like high end multi hundred dollar, but it is still production. Small scale manufacturing, high end. His name's Tom Balding. He's in Sheridan, Wyoming. But uh, the reason I brought him up is he told me one time he brought in a consultant to talk to him about his company just to see where he could improve. And they told him, they said, you have to realize every day that a new product launch is delayed is not a delay. It's loss. Because if a, if a product, say that again, say that one more time, every day that a new product that you're trying to launch is delayed is not actually a delay. It is a, it is a loss. And what I mean by that is, so if you launch a product six months later than you hoped, it's easy to think like, well, I'm still making the same money. It just was delayed by six months. That's not actually true. What's true is you lost six months of sales because even if that product was going to sell out, well, in six months time, you would have been on the next project. And so everything's been offset by six months. That's not a delay. That's an actual loss. Sure. And so the, the point of that conversation, what him and I were talking about when he said that was like, if you're trying to get something going, like, let's say I ran out of tooling on like this fixture. He was saying, if it's going to prevent a new product from getting to market by even a few days overnight, the shipping, because he was saying it's easy to like continue to kick the can a little bit and not realizing that like, no, compress the product design and development cycle as much as possible. And at up to a point, almost any cost. Yep. Because you're losing money every day that it's not on the market. Um, yep. And so that's, I just circle back to like, that's a kind of a painful little lesson with the supply chain thing of like 50 days. You know, it's, it wasn't delayed. It was 50 was days. Was this what you were talking about in the beginning where you said like you, a couple of your suppliers had problems? Yeah. Yeah. With a surface. Grinder. Okay. Yeah. So without, without going into details of like the who's and whatnot, but what was the actual problem? What was the issue? Yeah. So let me preface this with just saying that I don't have any interest in hiding my suppliers from people listening to the podcast or my customers and stuff. Like I want, I'm an open book about who is supplying and helping me and doing all that. Of course, all in the United States, most of them in Boise. But in this case, like be, there's a little bit of a tense situation happening be, between between a, a few suppliers that trickled down to right. me. And so I'm just leaving out their names for this conversation until I have the go ahead to talk more about this, which I think we should in a future. Yeah. Maybe that's just like a good, like, like a, like a post action report of like a problem that happened and what we can learn from it. Exactly. But at a bird's eye view, basically I was going to have, I was having my, all my knives like Blanchard ground to thickness, which is another way to surface grind. And the, uh, this company that was doing the Blanchard grinding for me, they're a knife manufacturer they had a whole bunch of knives that heat treat. The knives came back. They had some serious issue with basically uh, just bad finish on the blades that was going to require more surface grinding. They had been surface ground prior to heat treat. And so the fact that they needed all this work after was a surprise to my supplier. And so they basically had this huge stack up of work that was like kind of forced upon them on their Blanchard machine that was kind of, it just, kind of displaced my work and they were honest with me about it. Like, this is what's happened to us. And I was in the loop. They're a local company who I know like kind of the ins and outs of what they're doing. So I saw this coming once I found out that they had this issue on their plate. And so I had to kind of just turn 90 degrees, find a new supplier in the Valley to surface grind for me. So that's where that 50 days, it was kind of like this huge, like change of supplier, right? Right. right. Not because I'm leaving the supplier, but because they got in a big bind that trickled down to me. Well, and this is, this brings up like a kind of, it's like a teachable moment, which is like, Mm -hmm. what did you come away with any takeaways? Because ultimately the problem wasn't in your process and it wasn't even in your supplier's process. It was someone that they were working with creating downstream effects um, mm-hmm. which affected you. So do yeah. you think there's anything that you would do differently moving forward when you're batching work like this, or was it fully unavoidable? Yeah. And so what I can do is basically, I, I agree hundred percent, like an after action report when something happens, it's like, I would call this a catastrophic situation okay. and it's not for me necessarily. It was for this, this vendor right. of mine that is currently kind of in a, in a, in a bit of a bind um, and so I, I was doing exactly what you're saying is, you know, sitting around thinking like what, what could have been 
there's nothing they could have done directly to stop right. it, but there's maybe like insurance type moves that could have been made. And one thing for me that I realized is what parts of making a knife can you lose a whole batch yeah. all at once or like massive percentage of the yeah. batch? There's only a few parts that that can happen. One of them is shipping, but that's not what happened here. Right. What happened was a heat treat at anomaly, right. you could call it. And a lot of knives were lost right. all at once. And basically a heat treat oven at a big industrial operation can be large enough to put like a thousand knives yeah. in at one time. All your knives. Yeah. And so it's like, you could literally put the equivalent of a house worth of knives right. <laughs> in, in dollars into one oven at the same right. time. And an analogy would be like, if you're a bakery and you have the biggest oven known to yep. man and you put like a week worth of bread in all at yep. once, if it burns, yep. you're in trouble. Right. right. And so the, the thing is, yeah, these industrial uh, heat treat facilities, I'm not picking on, on them at all. But it is a liability to have all of your product in an environment where they can all be ruined, even if it's like a 1% chance. And a cost, you're going to get a cost savings. And that's where a lot of us look and you go, oh, well, I'm going to save money if I do it this way. The more years I think that you are in business, the more you become okay with the concept that problems are a given. Yeah, It is not if. Murphy's Law. It's Murphy's Law. So at some Mm -hmm. point, problems will happen. I'm going to relate this to shipping at some point in a minute, but, Mm -hmm. but so go ahead and finish out that thought process. So what is your work around there? Like, would you split, like, would you personally have a max number that you would send? Yeah. And I think it's across the board. It's like, don't, it's like you have a bunch of chips. You're sitting at a blackjack table. Like just don't go all in. Like how many are you willing to lose at once? And it's like, if it's a heat treat, if it's shipping, if it's something that could be catastrophic, it should be probably broken up in a way. If you can afford to lose that whole batch, it is what it is. You're going to get better pricing. It's going to be more efficient, but you got to be able to afford to lose it. If you're putting in a position where there is that change. I would love to know. And and I think too, this is, this relates somewhat to like smaller scale businesses, right? Where Mm -hmm. eating, I don't know how many, just thousands of dollars worth of steel we're talking. Okay. Mm -hmm. Would be very painful. So, all right. So here's my shipping, uh, analogy with this. So we just sent out mm-hmm. some SQDs for wholesale. We could have put them all in one box. It would have been cheaper to ship, but I realized if that one box gets lost, we lose all of the money. Mm-hmm. Two boxes cost me probably an extra hundred dollars in shipping, but one box could go completely missing and I can still pay for that product. There's some kind of salvage. So there's a salvage. So I'm hedging my bets and I'm not taking what I think of as like the quick money, which would be, oh, I'll save half on shipping because I'm not a shipping company and that's not where I make my profit. If I lose half my knives, that's a problem. So what I see that you're saying is almost as like almost a prime example would be one, shipping all your knives to heat treat in one batch that poses its own risk. Mm-hmm. So a po- potential solution could be like, if you have 500 knives to heat treat, essentially working with your heat treater to say, I'm sending two separate boxes. I want those separate boxes done in separate runs. Yes. Yeah. And, and another thing is like, if they're a company that let's say they're doing magna cut yeah. all day long these days, cause they've got all these different vet people that are sending them just say like, you can still put like 500, a thousand knives right. in there. I don't care. Just, I don't want more than 250 of mine right. at a time. Right. Or whatever, yeah. you know, it's just a, it's and, an odds game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, like my immediate at course of action is like, one of the things I did is I, I, I got to really thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to be shipping some knives. I'm introducing this into my workflow for the first time. Yeah. Cause everything else has been in Boise. I'm going to ship them down to Texas for the bevel grinding yeah. on this batch of confidants. And what I did is I just went to Harbor Freight and I looked at like all their like kind of gun cases or like you know, heavy duty, just plastic cases with the gasketing Dude, and stuff. Super smart and I f- idea. I found the biggest one that fit inside of a USPS flat rate box. And I'm only going to be able to fit like 25% of this batch per yeah. because of how much room the, the actual yeah. box takes up inside there. I could fit all the knives in, in one USPS box, but I'm putting a $10 POS Dude, Harbor Freight box that. in there, putting the knives in there. I'm going to tape it until it's like a quarter inch thicker in every dimension because of tape. And then I'm going to send it in, in four shipments yep. 
and even it's not even worth I mean, you could almost consider like sending them out one day apart yep. so that they're just on different trucks. Yep. You know what I mean? And it's like, it sounds kind of extreme, sure. but this bind that I'm seeing happened to honestly, one of my friends, like it's devastating. I mean, like you can really yep. lose. Well, the, and that's the, so. the, one of the traps of growth is that you, a lot of times are growing into an area that you don't have the capital to lose. So yeah. you're making yeah. a, you're, I say gamble. It's not really a gamble. It's an, it's a calculated risk, but you are taking mm-hmm. a calculated risk. It doesn't mean you have the financial backing to eat a catastrophic failure. And mm-hmm. so some of this stuff, like best practice at a small scale is like, almost about like injury prevention, mm-hmm. right? You're just like, okay, yeah. I actually can't afford to get hurt right now. I mean, you like relate it to like, I feel like, I don't know why I'm going to make a combat scenario relation here, but like you think about it and you're like, that's great. You're, you train and you're super strong and you're well-fed and that's when you have to like be in a fight. That's great. What about when you have food poisoning or like dysentery mm-hmm. and you're maybe mm-hmm. a little bit injured you have to think about it differently. So like best practice for small manufacturing and business, a lot of times is not looking at it from the ideal. This is the, everything is in its ideal state. Mm -hmm. You are at a risk. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it it also brings up like there's insurance in that regard in terms of like just self-insuring by distributing things. There's also actual insurance, which is one thing I'm going to, I'm, I'm insured for all my equipment and like all my stuff, but I don't think I'd be covered in a shipping loss necessarily. And so one thing I I was thinking is my dad actually, he makes really expensive saddles and they go in really big crates and then they ship and he has that same situation, but he can't break it up because it's a saddle. One thing. And so, yeah. And so he has a rider on his insurance policy that covers shipping loss. And it's, it's much, much cheaper to have that if you're shipping a lot of stuff than it is to pay like UPS to insure it. Um, because UPS, like somebody listening to this might say, why don't you just insure all the value of those? I'm like, we're talking thousands. And it also has to be provable value. So we're, we're worried about losing the downstream potential. Of yeah. what the, opportunity yeah, it's cost. not just it's not just the cost of the materials which we can prove, it's also mm-hmm. the cost of the finished product. And it just if yeah. you yeah if you can have a rider for a pallet of something, you're in a much better scenario. I'm gonna look that up because I don't yeah. think we have that. We yeah. don't do a lot yeah. of big numbers in shipping, so we a lot of times are just insuring a single package. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good good phone call to make though to figure yeah, out good to figure what out what the math. Looks I'm gonna like. throw in another just like like a small pro tip, which is we get used to shipping the way that we ship. And sometimes you will have to like, say something that's come up for us often is like needing to ship to Germany very quickly. We actually know that FedEx does better a lot of times than USPS. Right. And we just recently shipped a package that we needed to get there soon. USPS. like whatever uh, priority express. And as soon as it left, I was like, that was a terrible decision. It took five days longer and, and we saved a little bit of money, but it's like you, if you need a package to get somewhere quickly and securely, you it's worth paying a significantly larger sum of money and mm-hmm. and going against your like standard practice that's just my take yeah yeah it's kind of like the tom balding yeah, thing yeah it's like it depends on what you're doing specifically yeah. but time is money and it's like it's easy to say like well that's like 60 dollars yeah. for three days yeah. less i'm like three days yeah, yeah. and you know it might be three days is worth it might be 200 dollars. Yeah. but at yeah. the end of the day when i and we didn't make it for a fine we it wasn't like oh that's so much more expensive we just it's, it had been a while since we'd done it. And I feel like we just spaced that FedEx always works better. Yeah. I was yeah. like, ah, it's best practice. And that's another thing with that flow chart that I like is, yeah, it's one thing to just overnight everything. And like, yeah, there's a, there's merit in that. But part of my, why I did the flow chart is I was like, how can I make sure I'm preempting a few things here? Yeah. Because it's kind of like right now, like 
if I don't, if I'm, if I can't move to the next stage of my flow chart until I build a fixture that buys me a little more time for shipping to do this yeah. or whatever, you know, like if you do have a little bit of a roadmap, yeah. you can prevent having to overpay for shipping. Yeah. But if you do get to crunch time, pay the money. That's like kind of my philosophy yeah, right now. Absolutely. Money is generally the cheapest way to yeah. solve a problem yeah. before yeah, yeah. the problem happens. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at it and you're like, this is a purely financial decision and and you can actually afford it. It's usually the simplest. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Sure. So what else do we got today, man? Is that it? Are we wrapped? Uh, honestly, I feel like we rounded it okay. out real good there. I mean, <laughs> I think we had a little technical difficulty. I don't know if you guys caught it, but we, we had actually ended up doing a full hour. We did. Yeah. Well, yeah. we are, we're like slowly working towards being able to do some video and yeah, we had a glitch with one of us recording video and maybe one of us not. And, and the, the recording software having a problem with that. Yeah. Is that accurate? Sounds about right. Okay. I mean, yeah, we'll have to do some digging, but, but I think the product is we solved it for this episode, but let us know if there's like a weird stagger <laughs> where something we're saying doesn't make any sense. It's because there's a seam. If you guys can find where that seam is, you should yeah, tell us. Definitely. And I'm kind of curious. Or maybe we say the exact same thing in a different way for five yeah. minutes. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. A little deja vu section in this. Sweet. Yeah, man. Good to talk Good to talking. you. Good talking. That was a fun yep. one. Guys, thank you for listening. Um, as always, leave us a review. Share the podcast. Yeah. Let us know if you have questions, comments, and or yeah. concerns. And reach out to that long lost best buddy of yours. Amen. Do it. All right. Do it right Do now it. after yep. you finish Do this. It. See you guys. Peace.